I was wondering if, um, rather than in Christian meetings all the time or wherever, whether you're led at all in the street or at work, or for us at work or in our places of work, that people are sick, that we might always be led to um, pray for people. I mean, you meet, see people in a wheelchair or that there might be an opportunity there for a miracle just at any time. Is that something we might seek to do? I believe that uh, when you look at the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles, uh, that they certainly saw as many, if not more, miracles outside of the meeting context than uh, they ever did in meetings. So I believe it's possible. And uh, personally, I've prayed for a few folks in that way, but I often think that uh, Asda or Sainsbury's or Tesco's is where Jesus would work a lot of his miracles if he was here on earth today. And uh, if we're following him, then uh, maybe we should go further that way. I believe that uh, when you're led with compassion, that was Jesus, led by compassion all the time when he saw the needy, it did not matter where the place was, he went about and prayed. And so it's two ways. Many times he asked the person with the problem, do you want to be healed? So it also involves the person. Uh, if the person has faith, and you also have faith, you have compassion, miracles happen anywhere, all the time. And it involves the two. You don't impose miracles on people. I think it's a way of life. Um, and uh, as Don said, it's not uh, whether you're in a meeting or whether you're outside a meeting, it's whether you do what God says. And um, it could be easy to try and go into the hospitals um, with human sympathy and empty the hospital, but you're not going to succeed <laughs> because God didn't tell you. Um, that's human sympathy. But when you have the compassion of Christ and you're listening to God and are obedient to him, then he could direct you at any stage in your life, at any time in your life. But I think um, more often than not, you will find it, it happens within the context of a meeting because we have those opportunities. And if you're like I am, you're traveling pastor, and they find out what hotel you're in, um, they kind of try to short circuit uh, things. For instance, in Cameroon, uh, a crippled man came to me in the hotel at lunchtime, and um, he said, I want to be prayed for, for healing. Uh, I'm a cripple. Will you pray for me? I said, no. Come to the meeting tonight. He said, no, no, no. He said, I can't come to the meeting tonight. He said, I'm a cripple. I said, fine, stay sick. I said, I'm not praying for you now, but I'm telling you what will happen. You come to the meeting tonight. I'll preach the gospel, and within 30 seconds, God will heal you. You don't need half an hour. Just come tonight. And... He said, I can't. So I said, well, stay sick. And I carried on with my lunch. And that night when I got to the campground, front of the crowd of thousand, he was there. And I preached the gospel. And sure enough, he was one of the first ones forward. 
and within three seconds, God had completely healed him and he was running up and down. I believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and I will not pray for people unless the gospel's preached. Now, what was strange was the next lunchtime, he appeared in the dining room with his son and he said, my son's ill. I've got the miracle. God healed me. My son's come for a miracle. Will you pray for him now? I said, I won't. If he doesn't come to the campground, he's not going to get prayed for. He brought him to the campground. He got healed. The next day, he brings his other son to the dining room again and asks for me to pray. I said, I told you, I don't pray for people outside of the meetings. You bring him to the meeting. And he got healed. The next day, he turned up. And when we got back from the pastor's meeting, he was waiting in reception. He got his two daughters with him. And he said, can you pray for them? I said, no. Come to the camp. They came and they both got saved and healed. Because I believe the gospel is the power of God. And I'm very loath. It's not magic. And I think it's dangerous sometimes uh, to work outside the church. I would rather people invited people along to hear the gospel. And with hearing the gospel, they get saved. They repent of their sin. Because I believe we want a whole work. Because if they get just healed in their physical bodies and go to a Christless eternity, that's not a very good way of doing it. So I always try and get them. Get them to a living church. Say, hey, you know what you need to do is come. God can heal you. Come to church. Hear the gospel. And that way, you do a complete work because they're a whole person. So that's the way we work when we go on missions. It's the way we work here. I tell people, come, you know, I won't pray for people. Um, I had a vicar's wife ring me up and she said, uh, from West Country, she rang me up and she said, um, I'm ill, I want you to come down and pray for me. I said, well, I, I don't do that, you come to the church on a Sunday morning, I'll pray for you. She said, I'm a vicar's wife and I can't come, I'm too ill. And I want you to come down. I said, all right. I said, stay home and die. And I put the phone down. Uh, that Sunday morning, she was in the meeting, listened to the gospel and God healed her. Why? Because some people will run you around like a, a Dutch hare, you know, you'd be running everywhere uh, and let them come to church. There's nothing wrong with them coming to church and hearing the gospel. And I think Jesus is building his church. The gifts of the Spirit should function to build the church. And I'm not for Wimber Wonderland and democratization of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. I believe there are more miracles within the church that are more effective. Although I do accept that in certain circumstances, God will sovereignly do something wherever you are. And if he tells you to do it, do it. Okay? What I was going to say to you is uh, when the bishop ended, he said, if God tells you to do something, do it. In the early days of our church, it was very, very small. We started with 10 people in the worst ghetto, ghetto in New Orleans. And one day I was asking God, just driving along, I said, give me wisdom to know how to really see this church prosper. And the Lord spoke to me and said, you will build this church at this time out of the hospital. 
and I had a daily radio broadcast, and I only had a rented place where we, we had meetings. Very difficult to get to, so they heard me preaching the gospel by means of radio, and they would call me and say, my sister or my son or my daughter is in the hospital and she's very sick. Would it be possible for you to see her? I said, yes, I will. And for a period of about two years, I spent two days a week, didn't have anything else to do, only had a few people in the church. I spent two days a week in the hospital, and we had so many people dramatically healed that it wasn't long until all of the nurses on the ward, when I came, they would be there welcoming me, and people would have miracles done in their life. One day I had a lady call me. She said, I've been listening to you on the radio, and I, I have believed the gospel. I have believed, and I've become a Christian through your preaching on radio. She said, I have a little nephew, a little baby that's very, very sick, requiring surgery. And I said, I will come and see the baby. So I went to the hospital, and the doctors had already sent their technicians into the room, and they were going to operate on the abdominal area of this little baby. And they had already drawn a circle around the place and put an X mark here where they were going to make the incision to operate on the baby. And I visited with the parents for a few moments and prayed for the rest of them for, for, to, to receive Jesus as Savior. And then laid hands on the baby and prayed. And they took the child rolling towards the operating room. Well, that was the end of my day in the hospital, so I went home. And when I got home, I left them my phone numbers. When I got home, Barbara, my wife, said, the people that are the parents of the baby called after you left the hospital. They took the baby into surgery, and the doctors began to look at the abdominal area, and they began to press it, and the baby didn't cry took the baby back to x-ray, they could find no trace of the problem, sent it back to its room, said you can take the baby home. As a result of that, the following Sunday morning, there were approximately a dozen people in our church that made that their church home because of the miracle that was done to that baby. But uh, usually, when people would call me and want me to come to their home, I would say, come to the church and you can be prayed for now, New Orleans was about 98% Roman Catholic. And they would tell me in those days, remember we're talking about 50 years ago, they would say, no, I can't come to your church, it's a sin. I said, well, why would you ask me to pray if you believe coming to my church is a sin? I don't know, I personally believe in you, but I can't come because it would be a sin. I said, no, you have to come to the church. And one day, they began to start trickling in, and then the word got out, and ultimately they began to come with so many people that every Sunday morning, the average peop number of people answering the invitation for salvation became 25 and 30 people every Sunday. We, we, I, I thought I was going to baptize everybody, but like the bishop said today, it wasn't long until I just physically could not baptize everybody that was coming. And I got one of my associates, and I told him, I said, from now on, you're going to be the John the Baptist, Simon Peter, whatever you want to be, but you're going to be the baptizer in this church. But it all started 
with the fact that God worked miracles and signs and wonders in their life. Our church was built on the miracles of God. I would like to know if it's a necessity for somebody called into the evangelistic ministry to have a church base. Maybe I, a pastor, will be paying. So when you go out on evangelistic tour, when you come back, it will be more or less the head pastor. I want to know. Okay. You, you, you want um, what he was asking um, was whether a, an evangelist should be church-based, is what you're asking. Should have a church base. Uh, let me give you the advice of one very good friend of mine who's gone home to glory called Archbishop Benson Ederhoser. His view was, and it's a view that I hold, that if you have a ministry, evangelistic ministry, and you can't build a church, I doubt that you have an evangelistic ministry. Because the first thing you should do is have a church base. Jesus Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you'll find out what a man's ministry is by looking at what he builds. And faith without works is dead. And it's easy to travel around as an evangelist causing trouble in other people's churches. Um, where you go and you preach a nice, airy-fairy, super-spiritual, super-duper sermon, and it's the pastor that picks up the pieces. And the evangelist has dropped his two sermons or three sermons uh, on you, and basically, you have to, first of all, you have to get rid of the error. Secondly, you have to face the fact that um, his spirit's wrong. And I know all of us as pastors have suffered that, that, that indignity. Uh, and you, you realize, and I realized long ago what Archbishop said's right. Hey, if you're a true evangelist, you've got to be able to take people to something you've built and say, look at what God's built. Uh, now, there are exceptions. Uh, a good friend of mine, T.L. Osborne, um, he never actually um, built churches in the sense in America, but he did in India. And he'd stay at a place with Daisy for six weeks, 12 weeks, 14 weeks, and build. And once he'd had the campaign and the miracles, he'd teach them for a few weeks before he'd have his miracle campaign, teach the scriptures. Then he would have his miracle campaign. Then he would stay with the converts and, and build churches and then leave it with the local pastor. Um, that's what he would do. But it wasn't a quick come in on the weekend, drop your manure and leave. Um, it, it really is important to understand that I, I believe this, that I can go around the world today and I can say, come and see. And, you know, they can come and see what God's built. Charles does the same uh, in New Orleans. Um, and, and Winnie can do the same. And um, Silas and Winnie, Silas has built a church. So it's so important to understand, you've got to build something. If you don't build, what have you got? I believe it's very important that everybody be accountable to somebody. 
I believe no matter how large the person is or how large their ministry, I believe that there's somebody that they should be able to go to and be accountable to that place. In 49 years, I pastored one church 49 years. It went from 10 people to 3,000 people. And only one time in 49 years did I allow someone to come and preach in our church that did not have a local church base. Only one time I broke my rule, and that was a disaster that almost brought the roof in on my head. So the idea is that somebody has to be accountable or they have to have such a track record and that's where T.L. Osborne comes in. If someone has a track record of years that they have ministered in the world, and all that you hear about them and all of the reports are positive and good, then that's fine. But the average person that will come to your church, first question I would ask, which local church are you a part of? Who are you accountable to? And if they say, oh, bless God, brother, I'm just accountable to the Lord, I would say, well, go preach to the Lord then. Well, amen to most of uh, what I've heard is exactly what I would say. I don't believe anybody should wander the world preaching unless they have a local church and uh, they are accountable that you could get on the telephone and say, uh, this guy is here and I'd like to hear what you've got to say about his ministry and then you uh, know that the person uh, has the character to go along with uh, what he's going to say in the pulpit which is absolutely essential I believe and uh, if a man is traveling around the world I believe there should be that track record, like our brother says about T.L. Osborne. I remember my earliest days going to Africa. One of the things that impressed me the most was I could go out into the heart of the bush and I find T.L. Osborne's ministry was there. His uh, uh, films, uh, his tracks, uh, uh, his mobile evangelistic units, they were all out there. The evidence of that man was all over the place. And that was excellent. And uh, I hope that uh, if someone looked, they'd find the same from my ministry today. That I know there's hundreds of churches around the world that are there uh, as a result of what God has done through our ministry. And in Kenya, the average people now that preach all were influenced by T.L.'s ministry. After preaching, he went ahead into teaching leaders, and he could spend time until he made sure that the message goes through, and he didn't stop there. He gave the preachers tools, things to go on right. with uh, establishing the same, same message. So um, I believe that uh, the church is the base of all the type of evangelism we want to do. We have done evangelism in Kenya. We do crusades. But if you don't have a local church, you are doing a zero work. You, you are preaching and you leave people in the open and you say, okay, go ahead and join any church. 
But again, when you go back there, maybe 500 people got saved, you would follow up and find five or two. So we really must make sure that if we take evangelism, we take the gospel, is there a place where these people can be nourished spiritually? So if you want to see the work of God continue, I think the church is the base of our evangelism. If you have the church, then you can follow up and know that the Lord is moving and these people are going to heaven at the end of the day. I, I have found that um, as we've traveled the world, to see what God has done through the ministry of different men of God has been such a blessing, such an encouragement, such a challenge. And uh, when we first went to Benin and saw the work of the Archbishop, uh, that challenged us. And we thought to ourselves, um, the half has not been told. And uh, so we thought, well, if God can do that in Africa, he can do something in England similar. And so that encouraged us. And I don't think, um, and for instance, if you go to Oral Roberts University, the buildings, the um, architecture, the wonderful way in which um, he built those buildings, and he, um, as an evangelist, he built the university and uh, had no idea what he was supposed to be doing, but was led by God step by step. And the opposition that he faced, all those things... Um, are embedded in that what you see. And people come onto that campus and they can't help but be impressed as to what God has done. Um, and, for instance, when we take people to our school building, which is a 17th century mansion um, with 75 acres of ground, which God has given us, and uh, it's just beautiful. And people fall, pastors fall on their knees and weep and say, has God been this good? Um, and it's such an encouragement to them, such a challenge to them to say, this is what God can do. If he can do it for us, he can do it for you. And so if you don't have anything to show them, nothing challenges them. And so I think it's wonderful. I've been so encouraged and so challenged as we've gone around the world by what other men and women of God have done. The bishop was talking about being able to call people or contact people for a recommendation. Uh, not too long before John Osteen died, uh, it didn't make any difference that he had a tremendously large church. He still wanted to have a recommendation for people. John and I had known each other for over 20 years, but he called me this one day on the phone and he said, there is a man who wants to build a relationship with me and my church. And he mentioned your name, and I want to ask you, will you recommend this man? And he told me the name, and he was talking about a man that was always moving around. He'd do this here and then run to another place. He was unaccountable. I said to John Osteen, I said, no, I will not recommend him. Underline, bold letters, no. He said, thank you. I will, not, I will not do it then. And that's the way it is. I think you stay out of trouble that way. Yeah, and look, there are always people who, who want ministry and seek ministry. I always look for the person who's trying to get out of it because um, he's the called one. Um, it's the one who's uh, grasping for every... If you want to know the truth, 99% of my invitations that I get 
I say no to. 99%. Now, I could be all around the world all the time, but I, I just feel you've got to realize this, that we're here to do God's will. And God's will is not to inflate our egos. And if God wants to send you, strangely enough, he'll equip you before he sends you, and you'll prove it in a local church before you ever prove it anywhere else. And you need to grow in a local church, mature in a local church, and show the integrity. I had someone come uh, ring me up. I knew he worked with Don. Uh, we were talking about it at lunchtime. An individual worked with him for years, and he rang me up, and he said he was on his own. He wanted to build a relationship with me. I said, well, uh, but you're with Don. No, 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 no. Uh, and so I said, well, why do you break off? And his answer wasn't very satisfactory. And so I started digging, and um, he never contacted me again. God led him to ring me to build a relationship but when I ask questions but I, I'm just not interested in people um, anarchists and revolutionaries aren't right we've got to have integrity before God and, and I think you know I see too many churches split where an individual wants to take four or five people off and start his own thing it's not right it's just wrong and, and I think there's too many do it uh, they always tell you they're called of God, and I don't believe it. There's a question you wanted to ask, a question. You're speaking about evangelism, and when you quoted this morning about the disciples being scattered, what about the people that are going out on the streets and uh, witnessing and giving out tracts and praying for people and leading them to a church near their own place? Are they not also building the kingdom of God? Yeah, we, I don't have any problem with someone going and sharing the gospel on the streets. Uh, what we were asked was about just praying for healing. If someone goes and shares the gospel on the street to bring people to the church, I have no problem as long as they bring them to a church. You know when you go on the streets and you actually witness to people and you lead them to the Lord and then you point them to a church because when you go on the streets, there's people from all different areas of a city and there would be a local church, you would then go and pray about that person. You may never see that person again, but it's not our responsibility. It's no, the Lord's as long as the street person belonged to a church, yes. and basically they should be doing it within the auspices of their church, Yes, that's fine. That's right. Uh, I, I, I don't like the idea of you, know, you going and witnessing and re recommending them to another church. I would say, well, what's wrong with your own church? If you can't take them to your own church, you've got a problem. Maybe too far away. Uh, okay, if it's too far away, I would suggest that you alter the place where you're witnessing so it's near enough so they can get to your church. Simple as that. I belong to the 98% that have missed the real gospel and been fed a social gospel for a long, long time. What can be done for people like that? Um, basically, find a living church where the true gospel's preached. If you're talking about an individual, don't stay. If, if a church is not giving you what you need, do not cause schism, don't cause division, and don't stay and criticize 
vote with your feet, find a place where the Spirit of God is moving and the true gospel is preached, go there and become part of a living church. The one thing you don't do is destabilize the church you're in uh, because there are a lot of people that might be happy with it. Don't become a moaner and cause schism because that's not God's will. I believe God's will is not that. Um, but if you don't find it's meeting your needs and it's not what you want, then move. Vote with your feet and just quietly go away. No hard feelings. Find somewhere that will meet the innermost needs of your life. Okay, there's one up there. If God gives, asks me to do something, yeah. in terms of give me a project to do, and I'm doing a project, but I want in a, in, a, in a fellowship like this for my brothers and sisters to know what God is doing, how can I uh, be able, and uh, nobody knows who I am, how can I be able to tell them what God is doing without not mentioning I need financial help or financial breakthrough in my project. Okay, well, let, let me say quite clearly, anything that God gives a man to do, he will provide the means for doing it. And if God doesn't provide the means, I want to tell you, you misheard. Um, we, we, we own the, the property down the road. It's 70, uh, 75, 76 acres of land, beautiful house. We've built the school. We've done it debt-free. Um, I do not believe in debt. I believe in God. But God gave us, and God has always given us, the ability now, when you come into a big fellowship, you're not coming there. If you haven't got a financial breakthrough, you've got to ask yourself, well, did God employ me? Because whom God employs, he pays. And I like what the Archbishop Benson Ederhoser said. If, if God has given you something to do, get on and use what you have to do it. Uh, you know, if he tells you to build, then dig the first sod of ground and start with what you have. And don't go beyond what you have. And don't become um, a beggar. Uh, I believe in faith, and I believe in God's provision. He said he'd provide. And I find too many Christians want to go around and get every other Christian to help them. Now... If God leads me to help someone, I'll help them financially. But um, most people, I want to tell you what happens. Every week, virtually without fail, for must be, I don't know, probably 20 years, I can guarantee I'm going to get a letter from people or phone calls and elders will come and see me. God bless you, brother. I come from London, brother. Uh, God has given me a vision, brother. Uh, we've come uh, because we need 250,000 pounds, brother. And we're trusting God for it, brother. And Bishop, um, we really believe. You know, I went to sleep and I saw your face. And God said, come. And they give me uh, the details of it. 
And I, they say, we're believing God to provide for it. And I said, well, praise God. Get on with it. And they said, no, you don't understand. You're God's provision, brother. And I say, well, I'll give you something to eat, and that's all you're getting. I won't give you a penny. And they look at me, horrified. And, and that happens all the time. And, and I'm sorry. Um, I, I was a very well-known friend of mine, a bishop, came to me and, and bought these four men from, from London. And they'd found this church they wanted to buy. And she said to me, uh, you know, they, they've got this project. And I talked with them. And I said, well, how many people have you got in their church? She said, they said 30. And I, I asked them a few more questions. And they said, well, the reason we can't get any more is because of the building. If only we had a big building, then we could get the people. And they wanted me to invest 750,000 pounds in a building for them. And I said, look, you're way out of your depth. God doesn't take you from zero to cathedral because he knows you're too big a jackass and you need to learn something along the way. I didn't start here with everything, a school, a Bible college, university degrees, um, a church, uh, I started with three people in a living room. And I, now you look, 29 years later, you see what God's built. Benson Ederhoser started in a shoe shop with 12 people. He didn't start big. But I find today people have big imagination, big dream, big vision. And it's their own egos pushing them. You start with what you have. I started with three people in a living room. It grew to 60 within nine months. Beautiful miracles happened. We hired a hall. Hey, but it was only a, a small hall. And then we had an angelic visitation. Beautiful things happened. Then we moved to a dance hall. And uh, it had a sprung floor. And, you know, we could praise God for two hours. And it helped you keep going. And I was a young man then. <laughs> And, you know, I've got older, but the thing is this. Show us how you did that. No, I couldn't now. Um, but we, we had to grow in stages. And if you notice, when you grow in life, you know, when a baby is born, you don't take it to the dentist the first week and say, it's got no teeth, can you fix some teeth? And you, you know that the teeth will come. And then the hair grows. And, and then, you know, it takes time to develop. You don't send them out to work at the age of 12 months. You wait till they grow. And, and the, people don't understand this. But in the Bible, in the Greek, it talks about brephos. That's a babe that just has the power of breath. And out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. It's great to have someone in the church who rejoices. They just got saved. But they're brephos. Now the trouble is, churches try and put them to work. But a babe needs to have its nappy changed and needs feeding. It can't do... Then you've got um, what's called nappios or padian. Um, 
and, and that is, you know, a nappy stage where, where you're a young child. Uh, they desire the sincere milk of the word. In the Greek, it's different. And those are the people that desire that, that you may grow thereby. And, and it's responsibility. Then you um, go to Technionopadian, it is, after Napios, and that's young men. And then you find that in 1 John, and that's referring to the young men. You've overcome the wicked one. You've learned things, but you've grown up. And then you get to the stage of Huios in Romans chapter 8. They that are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That's a mature son. But you're not a Huios when you're a Napios. And you're not a Huios when you're a Brephos. And I find too many people who are Brephos trying to claim to be Huios, which they're not. And therefore, they're not led by the Spirit of God. Hey, New Jerusalem's the mother of us all. And so we've got to learn to develop. Now, it's the same with pastorship, same with leadership. You, you just don't become a leader of uh, thousands because suddenly you, you feel you've got a vision from God. Hey, you've got to go through the growth stages spiritually, and then you'll have to go through the leadership stages in steps. And God is sensible. He knows how to train and develop us. And, and okay, the life of hard knocks. You, you learn, you know. There's some things that I did when I, I was a young man of 23, 24, and I dread to think what I did. I dread to think what I preached. My God, it, I, forget those things that are behind. Yes. Oh, because that would to God I'd known then what I know now. But our mistakes, thank God, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all stupidity. Except some people have a gift for maintaining it. And... You have to develop. And what I plead with you is God is never going to get you to do something beyond your maturity level and beyond your, beyond your development level. And so um, please don't get a vision beyond your years. Uh, just, be, just start with simple things. It's safe to start with simple things. And, you know, it takes time. And I look back now and I thank God for everything I went through. Taught me a lot. And, you know, the reason I'm a pastor is I made more mistakes than anyone else, more quickly than anyone else. And God looked at me and said, there's a man with experience, and I ended up a pastor. Um, and you've got to grow up. If you're so perfect, you never make a mistake. You'll never make anything. In life, we've all got to go through things. But maturity comes through living. It don't come any other way. And we have to develop. And my plea to all of you is, don't see something. Let your ambitions and ego get the better of you and try and be what you're not. Just be what you are. Go step by step, day by day, and you'll be surprised when you look back to see how far God took you, how much he's done in your life. Yeah. And you can rejoice because you were sensible enough to know sufficient for the day is evil thereof. Uh, I was in a pastor's meeting one time, 
and, and these pastors, 12 of the biggest Pentecostal churches in England. And I was invited to go to the meetings because we were one, were one of the biggest 12. And, and I remember sitting there. Dear old Jim McConnell was there. Uh, I love Jim. Uh, and <laughs> what's your vision for the future? Oh, I'm going to have a 20,000 seater, said one. What's your vision? Uh, 5,000 And they were all big boasts. And I didn't say anything because I didn't feel I wanted to. And in the end, they said, oh, come on. Come on. Say something. You must have a vision. I said, I haven't got a vision. I said, I tell you, I'm going to live today and the only thing I want to see, I want to see Jesus. And, you know, I'll live for a day and what God builds is fine by me. I, I haven't got a big vision or a big ambition. I want to tell you something. Most of those men that sat around that table with me have built nothing and succeeded nothing. And actually, three of them are, are, are actually out of the ministry completely. Sad to say. Uh, when you get your ambition going beyond your experience, you're in dead trouble. I was going to say, uh, the bishop talking about starting on the level where you are, filling that place. Fifty years ago, I built, with the help of our congregation, built our first auditorium in the city. It cost $23,000. Eleven years ago, we finished our eighth auditorium, eight, and that one cost $8 million. And I had more trouble paying for the $23,000 building than I did paying for the $8 million building. Because by the time we built the $8 million building, I had almost 3,000 people giving us money to do it with. So you do what God says to you. A pastor of one of the largest churches in America, if I'd call the name, many of you would know. I was in a group where he was, and one person asked him, uh, how, how do you set your goals for the future? That's sort of like what the bishop was just talking about. He said, I don't set goals. He said, I listen to what God says, and I do that. He is now in a $60 million building, and it's virtually debt-free. But they started in a place that looked so horrible. If you were a pastor, you'd probably be ashamed of it. He said, I do what God says, and I don't try to set my human goals. I think that's good. All of us... We, God shows us needs and we want to meet them and you could call that a vision where you, you want to do something. I know that when God is calling you as a pastor, he will give you the burden and uh, put that heart in you to, to care for souls that are born again. But we go further into the words of Jesus. You want to go and do more. And uh, can I talk on what I went through with my husband when I got married to him and we found that there was a problem that had to be met. And we as the church, we had to take that challenge of uh, helping the needy in the society, especially the total orphans, and the many children that were going to the streets because of poverty in Africa. 
And um, we started in our house. And then after sometimes two, three years, we met a man. And this man told us of how we should do big things. And uh, oh, it was so exciting. He told us he had seen something in Nairobi that he was going to help us. So we hooked up with him, but uh, he was taking us to a place where I did not belong to us. So we went there and we went into debt and we had a lot of problems with 48 orphans. And I told my husband Silas, I think we were not ready for this. We have jumped some hurdles and that's why we are in problems. Why can't we just live the life that we had with children in our house? And if God knows that we have to move these children from here, he will provide for us. We can't suffer every day with people knocking at our doors because we have to pay for buildings and bills and people and we are not ready for that. Um, like we always say, men sometimes don't want to do that. But for we women, sometimes you're able to go a step and say, I'm defeated, I can't do this. If God cannot do it, I cannot do it. So I told the, the home, the center, we are gonna close up because we cannot do this. And it was very ashamed, shameful. But we went ahead and closed the center, the first center. And during all this time when we had many kids in our home, uh, I told God, if you are God and you stand behind your word, can you really provide for us, enough for us and these kids? If you can't, we will push these kids out of our home because we cannot pray every day for food and it is not coming and your word says you provide for the food. And if your word says it, you back your word. If you don't, I'm giving you time. We will push these kids out of our house. And uh, that terrible prayer made God to bring somebody into our home to ask us our need. By that time, our need was food. And I said, we need food to feed these kids. So for five years, we were feeding children in our home, taking them to school. We did not have privacy. Life became so difficult. I told my husband, I don't think I like this life. I will not live like this the rest of my life. If God wants us to take care of these kids, we need a home, a house for these children. And the very time we prayed, the Lord again sent somebody to come and help us into getting a piece of land to start the home that we have right now. And um, to cut my long story short, um, there was a time when we had 78 children and they were not doing well in school at all and we were feeding them. We had, had asked God for food he provided. And now the children were fat but stupid, were not performing. <laughs> So every time I used to sit down and complain and argue and I said, we cannot feed healthy children that are going to end up being nothing in the society. We really want God to do something about this. And we started thinking about education. We had never done it with all our many churches. We had no school. And so God of Miracles brought us here. And when we came to Panayal Church and I saw a school in the church and I said, I think this is what we want to do. And I shared with the bishop, I said, Bishop, I think this is what we want to do. We have a home, but we don't have a school and our children are not doing well at all. And he said, if you have to do it, don't tell me or ask me. You go and do what God has told you to do. I have nothing to do with it. If you hear from God, go do it. And that was blunt, but I took it seriously. <laughs> when I went home, I told Silas, I have met people who started a school in a garage. And we have dormitories. We are going to do it. And he said, how will we pay for teachers? How will we do this? I said, no, the God who gave us food for these kids is the same God that can give us money 
to pay teachers and give these children education. So we changed everything into classrooms, class one to four, and I'll never forget when I was standing in church and I called volunteers. That is unlike Africa. You people come to work for you without pay? No, they want to be paid, however much little. But I told them, it has worked in England, it will work here. I only want people who can volunteer their knowledge as we start, and God will push us from there. And I want to say that the faithfulness of God, when you go and do what he has told you to do, it only takes a while, but if you are on the right, right track, he will make it come to pass. And every time I've come to these meetings, especially the GGF meetings, I've learned a lot. And I always tell God, if this man of God will speak such oracles and the great things God is doing, God is not black or white. He's a spirit. And if he can do it here, and he has done it other places, he can do it for us also. And we have seen the stupid kids turning into being smart and the whole village talking about Ebenezer Christian School. And we've been honored, honored with trophies because we believed that when we do God's work, the Lord will provide. And I want to testify to the fact that we started our secondary school all by faith to the point that my husband said, Winnie, I have nothing to do with what you're doing because he thought we were going to flop again. And I said, we are going to turn our dormitories again into classroom. And this year we are going to sit 12th grade. It is all by faith. The government looked at the primary school section and they said, okay, if God can do this, we know God will do this too. So if you know the government is talking God language and faith language and are waiting on us. Instead of closing down the institution, they are seeing the faithfulness of God. So if God gives a vision, surely he will make a provision. And it does not matter where you are. And if he has to team up people, he will bring them along your line. Be faithful into doing what he has told you to do. Thank you. Um, actually, Winnie was kind to me. When she came, when she came, she said, I have a vision for a school. And I said, Winnie, I said, I'm sick of people with visions. Get on and do it. And she was so shocked. <laughs> but she was kind to me. <laughs> Is there another question? Muslims and Christians together. How could we be having uh, 11 years of war in Sierra Leone? And uh, during that time, people tried to bring peace in the country. And one of the persons, I mean, the groups had been Muslims and Christians. They went over to the Yamasukru, Togo, and the like, they went. And after the war, about four years ago, they set up a group called the Inter Interfaith uh, uh, Group Council. Interreligious council, interfaith, interreligious council. Uh, there are other, several Christians, and um, they say uh, it's not good for us. I mean, I'm not talking about the Al Qaeda and the like. I come from a Muslim background, and as a Muslim before, became converted. So people are saying other Christians, Christians are saying there is no need bringing Christians and Muslims together on a, in, a, in a council. So I just want to know whether uh, I mean there are several schools of thoughts. I, want, I, want, I just want to know if at all, uh, it's, I mean, it's nice to do that, or is there a limit uh, for, a, for a just cause, you know, to bring Christians and Muslims together, you know, or, I mean, it can be Judaism and the like, interfaith, you know. 
It, in my opinion, in my opinion, it's quite simple, the answer. And that is this, there's one God and one Father and one Jesus and one Savior. Muhammad doesn't heal, he's dead. Allah is not God. God the Father of Jesus Christ is God. But we shouldn't compromise. When I go to Africa, I tell Muslims I won't pray for them if they won't renounce Muhammad. I tell them straight, in Ibadan, that's what I did, 500 Muslims stood up and renounced Muhammad. And then I prayed for them. You see, when you see blind eyes open, you see cancers go, you see deaf ears unstop, you see cripples running, and then you tell them they can't have it <laughs> unless they renounce Muhammad. It's a choice, isn't it? And they make the right choice, and they receive Jesus. We have a gospel that's almighty and powerful. We don't have to be embarrassed. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to say, yeah, we'll, we'll join with anyone. We're going to make it plain. This is the gospel. This is the truth. What should the response of the Bible-believing Christian be in a country that uh, moral standards are falling apart? I, I believe the answer is preach the gospel. There's no other, nothing else to do. If you start uh, negotiating, you will compromise. You've got to preach the unadulterated gospel clear and plain. There's no other answer to the moral decline in this country. You won't change it by anything else but the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you try to water down the church to accommodate to that kind of philosophy, you play into the hands of uh, the wrong crowd. I think we have a word to preach. We have a message. Let's get on with it. I think one of the most dangerous things in the world today for young people and young children are telephones with text messages where kids text each other with filth, internet where they converse with people and pedophiles are getting into chat rooms yeah. and they're getting seduced by lies. And to me, uh, I think those things should be banned from every home. Uh, I think it's a real dangerous thing. And I'm finding too many parents, in ignorance, let their kids have things they should never have. Do you know, I grew up without a portable phone, a mobile phone. And uh, it's amazing. I, you know, I grew up without a computer. Uh, I, and I turned out pretty decent. <laughs> Though I say it myself. I know Charles will agree. Um, and, you know, but we've had to learn about these computers. I mean, they're a curse, but we've had to learn because they're, they can be a real blessing. But I'll tell you this, young people today, they get themselves in bother because they get in a computer and they have lost the ability to communicate with human beings. And then they get into text message and they live in a mythical world of make-believe. 
It's like the little kid who, who, who begins to talk to people that aren't there in their imagination, but then doesn't come out of it. And I think that, you know, more than the moral tone, I think we've got to really ask ourselves some questions because what has happened is we've got family breakdown. You find families don't have communication. Uh, they just don't. And you find children don't communicate with their parents anymore. And the whole thing is an insidious destruction of family. And I believe the source of a decent society is husband, wife, and children communicating together, living right, and then a church where they belong and where they're trained up in the fear and admonition of God. And so you've got a, a wholeness. We had a rule in our house as our, we have two children. We have a son, two and a half years older than our daughter. And when they just began to come along, television began. And whatever age you live in, whatever thing that comes up, that generation thinks everybody's going to hell because of that one problem. When the automobile first came along, all the people were saying, oh, all the young people are going to hell because of an automobile. Automobile doesn't take anybody to hell, it's what you do with it. Television doesn't take anybody to hell, it's what you let happen to it. When our children were growing up in our house, we had one rule above all others that was a communication rule. When they came home from school, they got took care of their homework, and then usually about six o'clock in the evening, we would eat our family meal. They could not have a television on, they could not listen to the radio, they could not read books. We all four of us as a family sat there and ate together, and I asked them about their day. Their mother asked them if they had any problems we could help them with. We wanted to know what had happened to them. We had an input into their lives, and we asked them to put into ours. And I think that that is one of the greatest things that families can do today. When I visit families, they are all over the house while they're eating their meal. They're watching television. They're watching a sporting event. Didn't matter what happened. When we sat down to eat, that's all we did, and we talked to each other. It's amazing what will happen to your children when you finally get ready to talk to them and get them to talk to you. Amen. Um, actually, I want to ask about the role of a pastor's wife in the husband's ministry. In light of whether it is passive, active, also in terms of the call of the wife to the call of the woman. I certainly could never have done my job as a pastor's wife and whatever else I do um, if I hadn't been called. Um, I do believe that a pastor's wife needs to be called as well as her husband. Because if she isn't, she will find the, the job too difficult. Um, I had a separate call from my husband. It was before I met him. Um, it was, but it was clear, it was definite. And um, it has stood me in good stead the whole of my, our ministry, ministerial life. 
because I know that I know that I know that God called me. Um, and so uh, whatever I do, I'm always a help. I try and help wherever I can. Um, I'm not there as a, co a competitor. I'm there as someone to encourage, to help, to do what I can. I can't stand it when you find a ministry where the husband and wife are competing. That's terrible. What on earth would God do that for? Put two to people together who are competing. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, but yet you see it all the time. Um, and I have found that God is um, so faithful in uh, bringing me on, encouraging me to take new steps, encouraging me to launch out in different areas, um, all through my ministry. But I've never tried to compete and I've never tried to push myself. God has always just encouraged me and got me to go the next step. So please, if you're contemplating going into the ministry without a call, especially as a pastor's wife, please don't do it. <laughs> and might I say, it's taken me, uh, we've been married now 32 years? Is it? 34 years. <laughs> Taking a long time to train her. <laughs> I just would like to share with you because this, just like Ruth, I've been married to a minister for 42 years, but something God taught me quite early on, and that was from the life of Abraham and Sarah. When God called Abraham, he could never have been the father of many people that was going to be the stars of the sky or the sand of the ship without Sarah. Sarah was part of Abraham's call. And if a man has a call to ministry, I believe his wife is part of that call. And just as what was said that there's no competition, if you are part of a ministry, there is no competition. And I often put it this way, that just as we English people, we like milk, most of us like milk with our tea because it complements it. I believe I compliment Don and I make him better. And I believe that's for every ministry. In the same way, Abraham could have never fulfilled God's call if it was not for Ishmael and Isaac. It was generational. God's grace was upon Sarah, and God's grace for the call of God was also upon his family. And I believe when God calls a man, it's his wife that is part of that call, and also his family will receive the same grace to be part of that call. Don wants me to say about my call. I was called before I knew Don when I was 17, and I knew it was a call of God, and I left my job. And God called me to be the ministry of helps. You find it in Corinthians, very much so. And for many, many years, Don will tell you, and people who know me, I was happy to be in the background. I didn't want to be on the platform. I just was happy in the background as a ministry of helps. And then came the day when I believe God developed that. And my husband kept pushing me and saying, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to. And, and I succumbed to it. But I believe when you're faithful to the thing that God calls you to, it's like the, the, um, the parable about the talents. 
You know, when you use what God has given you, God will give you more. And I believe that for a wife as well. There will come a time when your own ministry, I believe, will develop and God will honour you for being just the wife. If you want to say just the wife, I don't believe I've ever been just a wife <laughs> because I've been part of my own call, but I've also been part of my husband's call. And I believe that's important for every wife. You know, I used to say, sometimes say to, dog, to Don, I'm not a dog on a lead who follows and is pulled along. You know, I am part of him. And I, I know what it is to be a wife that, you know, is, is in a sense pushed in the background. One of the saddest things I ever meet is as Don and I, we travel, and especially in African countries. I've been to churches time and time again. I've met the pastor. And sometimes I say to Don, we've been here, you know, four or five times. Who is his wife? Who, who are his children? We don't know them. Where are they? You know, and I believe it's very important, very, very important for a husband in ministry to acknowledge his wife. Why? Because you're saying to everybody else, this is my wife, this is the one God has joined me to. And, you know, it, it, is, it is, I believe, an aspect to stop adultery and it's to stop people, you know, coming along and being seductive if you're there together with your wife. If, if everybody knows who your wife is... You know, it's, it's reality, and I think we have to be very real in the culture that we're living in today. That's very good. Yeah. Um, could I say that when I was getting married to my husband, I was a born-again Christian, and I loved to do the work of God. And I had prayed and asked God to give me a man, a man of God that will do his work and will hold me in his side and allow me to do the work of God. I had seen the culture and I didn't like it. And I said, God, I want to work with my husband as a helpmate. But also if I have chance, I can tell people about Jesus. And uh, God answered my prayer more than I ever wanted, yes. So I, I really believe that working with the man of God, however much you may not know that God has called you, but when you rub the anointing of a man of God, to an extent, the Lord will bring you into that level. Yes. Because you are one. In that vow of marriage, you become one. And if the ministry has to continue, he has to give you a kindred spirit. In that you will love what your husband is doing. And you will want to be part of it in every way. And so there must be a calling in a pastor's wife. So that the ministry can grow. And she also will feel uh, uh, one with her husband in the work that they are doing. And so I believe that all pastors' wives, at a certain level, God will reveal it to you how you can work together as a team and will give you a burden, almost the same as your husband, to get along and enjoy the ministry. I, I think one of the things that's important, uh, which, which um, probably isn't uh, adhered to much these days, but I have never traveled without my wife. And even when our children were young, uh, when I say young, you know, a couple of years old and, and, and older, uh, I always took my wife everywhere. When I develop, she needs to develop. When I experience, she needs to experience. And I worry that when men wander off without their wives, I wonder very, very seriously, because I 
believe that it's a partnership. And I, I don't want to go off to Africa. I don't want to go off to uh, South America or anywhere without my wife. Um, I, I, we've always traveled. Um, we've got the airfares together and we've flown together and we've been together. And um, now the only uh, kind of condition where it changes is that my wife goes off to places now where um, T.L. Osborne persuaded me and I found it reliable. He said Daisy always went to places before he held the crusade to check up and to make sure that what was said was true. And he said, you need to let your wife do that now. And my wife goes and she checks up the places where I'm going to go and she sorts out the details before I get there. And I think that's a smart move for a minister uh, <laughs> because I find that, you know, you can't rely on people telling you the truth, unfortunately, ministers when you go abroad. And it has been a real blessing having my wife do that. But otherwise, we travel together. And I would recommend that to any young ministry. Don't get caught up with leaving the wife at home and, and you running off all around the world. I'm sorry. I don't approve of it. I'm not saying that it's a rigid thing. I'm just saying I think it's a wise thing. And wisdom's justified of her children. Amen. I totally agree with that. I would say every ministry needs to recognize what Jesus said. He sent them out two by two. And if anybody comes to my church on their own, I send them back. I said, the Bible says two by two, and if you don't come two by two, you're not obeying the word of God. And uh, if my wife, for some reason, cannot travel with me, I always take somebody else. I will not travel on my own. And uh, it is a wonderful thing. And the other thing I'd say to brothers is always bring your wife into your sermons. I think that's a tremendous thing to do. That lets everybody know you've got one, that you esteem her, that she's a wonderful wife. I always tell people I have the best wife in the world. And I expect all the husbands to oppose me. And if they don't, I tell them off. <laughs> um, I will quickly add, I have the best wife in the world for me. And she's a gift from God to me. And I will tell everybody that. And uh, if she's with me, I'll say it. And if she's not with me, I'll say it. Then no, I've got a wife and she's very precious to me. Amen. My wife got a call from God when she was nine years old and she told her father and mother that night in the church she said God told me tonight I was going to marry a minister of the gospel she never forgot it she was very popular in high school uh, football players and others would try to get serious with her and she would say you're not going to be a preacher so I can't I can't get serious with you second thing that uh, was said was that not only must the wife have a call, but the husband must esteem her highly in front of the people. 
so that they will know the game rules, okay? Now, let me leave you with something that's totally unspiritual for just a moment, okay? They said this one guy, everywhere he went, he would not go two blocks away without taking his wife with him. So one man said, that's such an admirable thing. I notice everywhere you go, you take your wife with you. Well, why do you do that? He said, well, to tell you the truth, she's so ugly that I would rather take her than to have to kiss her goodbye, he said. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's well understood that uh, we know that Britain has been in serious moral decline over many years, and it's sliding rapidly. But also the concern of mine and of many others is the decline in the church. And when we hear statistics like 78% of ministers in the United States don't preach the true gospel, 98, sorry, uh, then I think that it's probably true of Great Britain. And uh, we're deeply concerned about this. Do you feel there is a correlation between the decline in the church to the decline in the nation? And uh, do you think God is going to bypass these churches and raise up a new generation? I think we need to define what we mean by church. And I really believe that um, God is not going to ever ignore his people. He loves them. And I believe God's going to raise up a voice. That's why we're a voice to the nations. And I, I think we've just got to get up. Okay, you say, well, there's only three uh, or five or ten I want to tell you, there's coming a mighty voice because he is the voice. And I, I have a great, great faith. I was on television recently being interviewed, and uh, the person who interviewed me said, there's this tide of evil sweeping across the nation. And I said, no, there isn't. I'm here. And I want to tell you there's light Look, you can either look at the negative or you can see the positive. I want to tell you, hey, it's great to have you all here. And if we've got one voice, we've got 100 voices, we've got 400 voices, we can change everything. If Wesley only needed 10 men to change the nation, we've got more than 10 men here. Let's not get into this defeatist and, and looking and worrying. Let's do what we're called to do, preach, teach, heal. The devil's in trouble. We're more than conquerors through Amen. Christ who strengthens us. That's right. Amen. Don't stir me up on that one. That's great. <laughs> Amen. Let's go out and, like I said this morning, enthusiastic. Uh, and let's expect things to be different. And, uh, you know, that so-called decline is going to stop. Enough, enough is enough. Supposing a church invited you to come and run a revival for them, and they said to you they cannot afford uh, the tickets for you and your wife, what are you going to do? And your local church cannot afford that ticket. I would stay home and build the local church till it could afford to fund what I needed to do. I would Amen. question it. Um, I'm sorry, but the fact is my wife's coming with me. Okay, do you agree that it could be possible for God to speak to you to go to a land for missions, maybe for a short period, without your wife? No. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 no, I agree that God can send somebody to a land 
without going with the wife. This is my own view. Yeah, but well, that's your view. Yes. God bless you. And we live in the northern Nigeria where Pardon? they kill us every day. What? We, I live in the northern Nigeria where we have all kinds of riot. And some of us are keeping our churches and even our wives and families are in the eastern part. Because we cannot stand the risk of losing our children, going to school, and being killed by Muslims. So the culture here is different. And I believe that some of the theologies here have been attached to the Western culture. And I don't think it's sound for me. Okay, but let me tell you, friend, I, I, I go up and preach in, I've preached in Kaduna, I've preached in Iban, I've preached in Nigeria, uh, Benin, um, all over the place. And, Port Harcourt. Now, look, I still maintain that a family is a family is a family. And I'm sorry, I don't care who you are, I still believe your wife and you are one. And I still believe in traveling together. And if you're in a Muslim area, then stay home and tend the church and tend your people. I think it's dangerous once we violate God's principles. I think we're in trouble. And I just think there are principles in God. And I don't think we should violate them. We, if we use our experiences and we say, well, our nation says this, our nation, our culture says that. You, you know, you can't negate what the Bible says. And the Bible's very clear to become one. And I think that I, I, I'm just glad that my wife and I have traveled together. Uh, and we travel together, and that's it. Uh, and that's the way it's always going to be. And I, I, I'm sorry, if, if I couldn't afford it, I don't go. I believe the Bible is above culture, totally above culture. And to start bringing culture into interpretation of the Bible is wrong and we must take the Word of God as the Word of God for us. My questions are actually two. Um, I understand the concept of an evangelist working within um, a local church but you also mentioned about an evangelist having proof in terms of a church a church-based result. The other side of the coin is that you, in, in Africa, we have quite a few evangelists starting churches just to impress other pastors so that they can mount their pulpit and to meet their financial needs. It seems that um, it can lead to a game of show me what you've got and, and how big your church is, then I, I'll, I'll let you come and preach. My other question, I want you to comment on that. My other question is, with the emergence of mega churches, would you support churches becoming incorporated as opposed to being charity or non-profit organizations? Um, there's two questions. One is, um, the, in becoming incorporated, um, the mega churches, um, it, it can be a better way of running your church to be incorporated. Um, from our, our legal system in this country. Um, and that is to do with law, just to do with law. And that's up to the trustees, how, how they organize the church. But you're better to be incorporated than you are to be non-incorporated in the way you run it. 
if you're um, if you're up to date with the law. Um, on the fact of of um, people looking at the size of a church, I I, I always want to see what a man's built. I'm sorry, I, I, I want to see. If a man boasts, I want to see what he's got. Um, and I think that's safe. Because I tell you what, when I see what a man's done, I know what the man is. Because like pastor, like people. And you, you can gauge where a man's at when you see what he's done. And I don't think it's kind of denigrating a person to look at what he's done and say, hey, that's great. Or look at it and say, hey. And, you know, red lights come on and, and you don't feel easy about it. Um, I think that God calls us to judge. Um, now, especially when it comes to prophecy. It says, don't, when someone prophesies, let the two or three prophets sitting by judge the word. And I think we, we're not gullible because there's a lot of guys out there in the ministry who are crooks. I'm sorry, whatever way you want to slice the pie, they're thieves, they're villains, they're crooks, they're hypocrites, they're liars, they're deceivers. And boy, they're good con men. And we need to know. And I feel happy. I can ring Charles up and say, Charles, you know, I've heard of this person. And Charles can say to me, hey, and I do the same with TL. When I get an invite, I've got an invite to Philippines. I don't know the person, but I could ring Don up and say, Don, you go to the Philippines. What about this? That's secure. No, it's not denigrating a person. It's just the fact. I don't want to get my legs cut off. Uh, you go somewhere and you find you got taken. Now, I, I want to tell you, it doesn't mean that I've never got taken. I have. Um, I got caught. And, you, you know, you, you get angry with yourself because I tell you what, inside you know there's something wrong, but sometimes you just can't put your finger on it or your fist in it. Um, <laughs> but but you get caught and no one wants to get caught and I have a responsibility to the flock of God to protect my people but it doesn't mean that at times you, you don't get caught and you, you look at it and you learn from it if you get caught once it's a mistake if you get caught twice it's because you're stupid uh, you know the first time <laughs> you get, but you don't carry on in it. And there are people out there who are con men. And boy, they're good at it. And that's why they remain con men. And so I, I don't feel ever that it's wrong to check up. Uh, and I think you, you've got a right to check up. I really do. Um, now, you'll always get detractors of successful ministry. Heck. If you read the internet um, on Oral Roberts, you'll get people slandering him, maligning him. But I've seen what the man's built. Uh, if you look at um, Benny Hinn's, boy, do they slate him. But I'll tell you this, there's a lot of people around the world that are grateful he's got a gift of healing. 
And I'm grateful that he's there. Uh, and you look at Kenneth Copeland, they slate him. Now, uh, I'll tell you this, he's got on and he's built. Uh, Hagen, they slate him. Uh, you'll always get detractors. And that's part of the package. But what you've got to do, we're not talking about that, we're just talking about fellowship. And that's why GGF exists. Hey, if we can't be open with each other, and honest with each other, and straight with each other, then let's not call ourselves Christians. Uh, I have one question, because of the, the topic of the conference is to be a voice to the nations. And um, to be a voice to the nations means to have to preach the gospel. But sometimes it's to have to preach the gospel. But there are nations that the voice of the gospel cannot be heard with people who are not involved in politics. What do you think about that? Uh, can Christians have a position in politics and how they can do that? and still remain good Christians. Yes, and um, I have a little bit of concern about the answer you gave to our brother from um, Sierra Leone. Because there are some activities that the government can push Christians to be involved with, that is uh, with different relations. It is not just preaching the gospel, it's just an organization. How can Christians react to that? Uh, is it not part of our contribution to the society, to being in, involved with other people? That's uh, my concern about that, because I know most of the people who are here will be going back to most of our nation in Africa. They will face that in a very good, in a very uh, practical way. And um, because if you can take that according to in England, it's a little bit different. It, it may be different. Um, if I can also say something about the brother who came from north, the northern part of Nigeria, there will be situation that it will not be possible for people to go and work with their wives because it's a very risky place. That is my, my point. And uh, at the same time, we have a missionary in an Islamic country. We don't even say where he works. He went there, he stayed for three years, and then he sent a message to my church and said, I need my wife with me because I don't know when I will die. They can may kill me. And it's better that she will be there and tell you the news, the, the news at least that I've been killed. So in a way, you have to study the situation and know exactly what can be done in a situation like that. And we may not every have all the news about everybody, but if the people are in two group, in, in groups, and uh, it, it will help. Because if somebody goes to a, a place like that, he will not go for two or three days or two weeks. He's going for a lot of, maybe a year, and he cannot stay there without his wife. But it's a very risky place. But we have to 
think of all the conditions. But if somebody goes maybe for uh, two weeks in a very risky place like a Muslim country, uh, places, maybe he can go for a short time and come back without a wife. I, I'm not saying it in the way of going in nations where you go to the hotels and myself, I like to travel with my wife. Um, the third thing about uh, evangelism, the evangelist, the minister of evangelism, I know that uh, there are places in, in, in the work that is, if somebody doesn't have any reference or any recommendation, it's very, very risky because he, he can just tell you things that are not true. But for him to have a local church or to be sent by a local church, that is very, very important. We have a work we are doing among the pygmies. I have not been in that place myself, but I trust the missionary who have sent there. And he cannot show to you the work he is doing because those people are just nomadic people. They move about in the, in the jungle. So he has not established local church, but we trust him as our missionary, knowing that he is doing the work and the work is going on in the jungle until maybe many, many years after, something may change because that's the kind of place he's working. And to that man, we cannot expect him to give numbers, how many people he has, but we ask him, is he doing the work? And we make sure we support him because he's doing the work because we sent him. Uh, but if it is in a town where we have mega churches, we have big churches, we make sure that he has done something that we can, he can show to the people. That is my point. Okay. The, the, the thing is, um, I, I, I don't um, dispute that if you're going with a nomadic people who are wandering around the jungle, um, if you're sending the missionary from your church, an evangelist from your church, and he comes back to your church, no problem. You're responsible for him, so you validate him in what he's doing, and you feel happy with that. There's no problem at all. Just don't expect me to support him. It didn't come from my church, and I don't know anything about it. What we're saying is when people travel. The other thing is, Sonny, um, it's important that we can pick up the phone when we're in trouble. I mean, if you don't know Sonny, his brother was murdered, and he picked up the phone on the day when he got to his home to me, and he needed to communicate with someone. It was important. Hey, we all need friends. Yeah. And when things go wrong, you need someone. And the trouble is with too many pastors, they've got no one they can pick up the phone to. And in churches, when you get in trouble, they want to kill you rather than help you, especially in lots of denominations. They, they, they aren't on your side. When, when a brother's overtaken in a fault, I believe in restoration, not assassination. Uh, we're there to lift up, encourage, help, and restore. We're not there to kill. We're not there to maim. Uh, Christianity is totally different. Uh, and too many people are condemnatory of people. The people get in messes. Things go wrong. Who's going to help them? 
If we're not there for each other, it's a sad day. Uh, that I believe, uh, and it's to do with that. Um, so all we're talking about is is the problems of people wandering around and, and deceiving. Hey, there are good people out there, and thank God for them all.